Welcome to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. My name is Dr. Andrew Trasetta, a GP working with NHS Somerset, and I'm joined by my colleague and friend. Dr. Peter Bagshaw, GP and uh, NHS Somerset Mental Health Lead. And we're really pleased to welcome today two other friends and colleagues, uh, Dr. Alice Colking and Debbie Wint. Alice, please tell us about yourself. Thank you. Um, Well, it's a delight to be with you today because talking about safety planning is one of my favourite topics. I am the clinical director of an organisation called For Mental Health, and we're behind the Connecting with People programme, which is essentially um, compassion-based, accessible, high-quality training. But we also develop self-help resources, which are freely available for the public. And I suppose our aim, if you like, is to reduce the risk of suicide, to share our hope, to help people build their resilience, um, to promote emotional well-being so that everybody can look after themselves and those around them just a little bit better. That's fantastic. What a wonderful mission statement as well as an introduction. And you're a consultant psychiatrist by background as well. Yes, recently retired. I worked in the NHS for over three decades. Most of it, I suppose a lot of my work was in the field um, when I was working as a liaison psychiatrist with people who attended in severe distress with suicidal thoughts after self-harm or suicide attempts. But I suppose I was lucky in that I was able to work part-time for 20 years, which then gave me time the rest of the week to spend exclusively in the arena of suicide prevention, to be able to work with the most incredible people to take forward the sort of the mission that we have. So not only my four mental health colleagues who are who are a really committed, passionate team, but also our wonderful trainers and expert reference group members. And we're lucky that we're able to work in different countries. That's great, Alice. Debbie. Hi, so I'm Debbie Wint. I'm a psychologist by trade um, with 30 years experience, getting quite old now, but 30 years experience working in the NHS in mental health services. But I also work as suicide prevention lead within Somerset NHS Foundation Trust in our mental health and learning disability service groups. Um, So my interest in suicide prevention um, has sort of stemmed many, many years because I've worked a lot with people who've had suicidal thoughts and I've got lived experience of suicide loss, both personally and professionally. Um, And I'm really delighted to be part of this discussion today because one of the um, joys in the last couple of years when I've been doing this work has been delivering the training that Alice's um, group of um, trainers have have developed. And actually, you know, we've been really, um, yeah, we've very much enjoyed doing that. So I'm really delighted to join you today. That's fantastic. And I'm just totting up that between the four of us, I think we've got 140 years of clinical experience. So (laughs) anyway, Alice, we're talking about safety planning. What is a safety plan? Well, uh, before I answer, let me just say uh, one quick sort of safety mention in that I know it sounds obvious we're talking about safety plans and they're to help people to know how to stay safer if they're experiencing distress or suicidal thoughts. But it could be that even though we're talking about very sort of positive things about things you can do for yourself and others, that it still may bring uncomfortable or distressing feelings. And I would really hope if anybody listening to the podcast, if they've been able to, to reach out for support and or keep on listening, because we'll give you some really practical strategies. But if someone's really distressed now, if you go on the stayingsafe.net website, 
there is a button which says need help now and it takes you to all the national 24 hour available um resource of a range of different organizations um but coming back to safety planning i suppose in this in the simplest sentence i would say it is a a pre-made list of things that you and others can do to help you stay safer if you're struggling if you're distressed or if you're having suicidal thoughts and as the podcast develops we'll be able to talk about it in more detail but you know i call it the emotional health equivalent of putting on a car seat belt so i put on my seat belt at the start of the journey i don't i would never you know and, and when i'm driving i would never even dream that i'm going to have a head on collision but if i did that seat belt may well just save my life and we put it on at the start of the at the start of the journey not at the point of collision so ideally people make a safety plan when they're thinking clearly when they're calm and before they start to struggle but actually it's never too late to make one you can help someone literally up until the moment that they may try to take their life it's never too early and it's never too late really interesting debbie what would you like to add to that i think that's i absolutely agree with alice's point that um it's never too late but actually really helps for people to have thought in advance um in advance of distress because we know that when people are in distress perhaps it's more difficult to find solutions to problems usually when people are feeling really distressed they're feeling very hopeless and sometimes those prompts can give people a reminder um, so, you know, within the safety plan, you might think about reasons that we might want to carry on reasons for living and remind us that perhaps people have got through difficult times before. So, you know, having that in advance can be a really useful um, set of prompts for people to really give them some practical solutions about how they can respond to that current episode. I think that's a really helpful introduction to what's a, a very important and sensitive topic. So, Alice, can I ask you to tell us a bit more detail about what you would include in a safety plan? Ah, oh, yes. Well, that's a great question because an overwhelmed brain needs simple and easily accessible information. And so a safety plan has a clear stepwise structure. It's designed to help someone safely navigate very intense or difficult feelings and it can actually help to interrupt suicidal thoughts or plans and stop things spiraling out of control. It generally has several sections and uses somebody's own strengths and assets. So initially, it involves self-help, ways to make their situation safer, how to find and access support from others, culminating in how to access 24-hour emergency professional and crisis support. So ideally, a safety plan will prioritise the most helpful, easy or quick strategies. Usually it will include a range of strategies to help the person get through right now, and ideally, that would include their reasons for living. The next section are strategies to lift or calm their mood. Then followed on by 
activities to distract them. The next section would involve connecting with people for social support. Now, I don't mean necessarily to talk in any detail about how they're, they're feeling, but to connect with another person, often for distraction. Then a either people or organisations or both who can provide emotional support and possibly also specific suicide prevention support. And as I said, culminating then in professional support and actually how to then access crisis. And basically, people work through each section of their safety plan, either until they feel safer or until they know that they've exhausted their own their own resources and they now need additional support to stay safe. And often at this point, they involve other people, whether it's their informal social support or whether it's more professional support. And I, and I think it's a really key point for your listeners, particularly people working in mental health services or in um, the emergency department, that, you know, say if somebody presents in crisis with a safety plan, that they've gone to the point of having the crisis support, it doesn't mean that their safety plan is ineffective, but actually it means that they have now exhausted their own coping strategies and they are implementing their agreed safety plan to stay alive. And I think that's a really important point to emphasise. And usually somebody would follow their safety plan in a sequential way, but actually if their distress develop really quickly, or if for any reason they tip straight into crisis, then yes, they may try one or two things uh, from each section or a couple of sections, but actually if they are really struggling and absolutely not safe, then it is safer that they will skip a section or two and go straight to accessing support for another person. Alice, that's a fantastic framework that you've outlined and it's tried and tested and I'm sure it's helped thousands of people already and I hope that it helps many, many more thousands. So thank you for that. So can I ask you both, what what do you think makes a good safety plan? Well, I think um, the more bespoke it is, the more personalised. You know, we talk a lot now about the advancing in healthcare, about personalised medicine. But actually, in the arena of emotional distress, we should also be thinking about personalised care. So a safety plan should ideally be like somebody's fingerprints. It is literally unique for them. There are various sections and there are lots of different types of safety plans, but generally they have the um, the same sort of set of, of broad sections, which we can go through in more detail. And there is certainly research showing that the more bespoke a safety plan is for the person, the more they're involved in its development, the more sections that are completed, then the more effective it is. And um, I don't know if now is a good time to tell you about the various headings or if you want us to do that in more detail later on. Sounds a great idea. Yes, please. Yeah. So if we look at a sort of, if you like, in for mental health, one of the things we're trying to do is trying to make what is in the too hard box, because obviously suicide prevention can feel almost like a daunting topic. 
But if people can feel empowered that they can make a difference, that they know what to do, then obviously it means they're more likely to engage in the, in the subject matter. So we like to make things very clear and understandable. And we think that broadly, there are three main types of safety plan. The first type is one that you entirely make on your own, or maybe with the help of a buddy, like a friend um, or a family member. The next type is one which is made with a particularly trained health professional. So that could be any health professional. And we use an assessment framework called Safe Tool. And in that case, your safety plan is designed to exactly match the assessment that you've just had. And we can talk about this in more detail. But actually, for some people who maybe have more complex needs or maybe are struggling even more, dealing with lots of different life events, they may or may not have a mental health condition. Potentially, they could maybe um, be already using self-harm or maybe having attempted suicide. Clearly, they need a more comp comprehensive plan with, with, if you like, additional layers of support. And we call that an enhanced safety plan. And by having these clear definitions, I think we can have a more useful discussion because the UK is really at the start of its safety plan journey. I think other countries have been using safety plans much more routinely for, you know, almost a decade in some countries. And the UK we're now catching up, I'm, I'm happy to say. That's so good to hear, uh, Alice. Thank you. And I'm, you won't say, but I'll just share with our listeners that I'm sure you're in the forefront of that, that journey that the UK is going on. And it's just great that we're working with you in Somerset. Um, just going back to the safety belt analogy, there was actually a lot of resistance in the 1960s from both the, the libertarians, the politicians and the um, or some politicians and the uh, manufacturers because of the cost of doing it. But the cost of not wearing a safety belt, even though I mean, I was about to say, even though we all do listeners, I hope we all wear safety belts. And I hope that for all of us, actually, statistically, and I'm going to use heavy irony now, statistically, that we don't actually ever need our safety belt in our car because we never have that head-on collision. So you could argue, uh, using a lot of irony, that it's a waste of time. But actually, I wouldn't dream of driving without a safety belt, and I'm sure we all do, because it is. we know it makes sense. And so safety planning is so important. Alice, I remember you hear, hearing you talk about suicidality before, and we can all feel that life isn't worth living and we can go into a crisis stage. And the problem about being in crisis is that our emotional brain gets hijacked uh, or our thinking brain gets hijacked. Do you want to say just a little bit about that briefly? Um, because that helps set the reason why safety belts and safety plans are so important. Mm, absolutely. And, and I think the problem is when somebody is in crisis or very distressed, the, the, you know, there is a neurochemical, there is a biological change in the way they think. People are, it's almost like people develop tunnel vision and perhaps they're unable to think of solutions. It could be that the emotional pain is so great that they just have to think about how can I stop this pain? You know, there are lots of different reasons and there are as many reasons for suicidal thoughts as one could imagine. And I think that actually suicidal thoughts are a lot more common than people realise. I think stigma and secrecy are the enemy here because the truth is I think we don't know exactly how prevalent suicidal thoughts are. You you can only measure what you see. 
And we know from the research, which is very sad research, but looking at people who die by suicide, a huge proportion did not feel able to disclose to their health professional on their last clinical encounter that they were experiencing suicidal thoughts. And I think this is why safety planning is so important because you can encourage people to make a safety plan early. And, you know, when you said about the way that the brain reacts to emotions, one of the parts that if I just go through the different parts of the safety plan, you can see how it appeals and there's a science behind it about why they have all the different sections. So the first bit would be reasons for living. The next bit is actually how can you make your situation safer? And if you like, that is a kinder way of saying removing access to means for suicide because we try and use compassionate, neutral language because the greatest research we have worldwide of suicide prevention strategies are actually removing, reducing means of suicide. And the truth is, I think people don't know exactly how safety plans work. We know they do. There's been a huge amount of research, including a systematic review, a meta-analysis, where academics have looked at the research as a whole and been able to, to take themes from it. So we know it's safe. We know it's effective. We know the more personalised it is, the better it works. But also, for example, the parts of our brain that deal with emotion are different parts than those that deal with distraction and our thinking. So that's why one of the, so after making your situation safer, the next bit would be to try things to lift or calm your mood, which would be like sort of looking at our emotions. But if that's not working, then the next section would be things to distract. And it could be anything that distracts you, even if at first glance, you might be surprised that some of these activities are involved in a safety plan. But the whole point of this section is to interrupt suicidal thoughts. It is to delay any progression of the suicidal thoughts. That's fantastic because, uh, I mean, firstly, it's fantastic because you have thought about all the details and the components and given answers. Mm -hmm. Also, because I remember very much from hearing you when I came and joined you in North Wales some years ago, that and it just struck me as a, a bolt from the blue of common sense that we can be in suicidal crisis, but crises pass. And if we can help someone through that three minutes or that five minutes, or that however long it is, with all the connections, the compassion, the, the, the pre-planning, the safety to get through that actually then you've removed that danger at that point and you've helped that person get through that difficulty. Absolutely. And I found that was transformation for me because when I was a very, um, very new, brand new consultant, it felt almost daunting thinking, my gosh, what can I do to keep my patients alive forever? And we don't talk about this. I wasn't trained in the way that people are trained these days. And certainly for me, it was transformational when I thought, well, how about if I try, you know, what can I do to help them not want to end their life today? What can I do to work with this person to help them not want to end their life this week? And that makes such a difference. And the minute you stop trying to predict risk, because we know that it is not possible to accurately predict the risk of a specific person at a specific point in time, Yes, we know there's a lot of evidence-based research that help us for populations, but for that one person, your one patient or your one care, person you care about, you cannot accurately, and we know we can't do this, but it's instead 
start thinking, what can we do to make them safer, to help them not want to end their life, to keep them safe today? And it's perhaps worth interjecting at this point that there's still this fear about discussing suicide with people because of the idea that it might trigger it. And it, it's worth mentioning that there's lots of evidence showing that that's not the case. So um, safe tool was mentioned earlier. Um, could you unpack what what safe tool is, please? Maybe, maybe Debbie, we can come to you first. I I'm not the expert. Um, obviously, we're delivering the training in Somerset, so we use Safe Tool in Somerset. So I'm really hoping that Alice will chip in. But so Safe Safe Tool is a framework that enables us to sort of shape a conversation to give our um, professionals a um, a set of questions to help them understand what's going on um, for somebody at a given time. Helps make sense of. Um, the kinds of suicidal thoughts and really helps our staff actually think in much more detail um, about really understanding their assessment and then takes them through a process of identifying risk and thinking about what we might do to put in place to try and respond to those concerns, the things that people are struggling with, and then to move into um, a place where we develop a safe um, a safety plan. So it's a kind of comprehensive um, framework that for mental health have developed that we use um, as a as a way of shaping those assessments and those conversations with our patients. But Alice, do come in and, and help me if I've if I've missed something. Yeah, no, that's great. And I think it's you know to reassure people that this was co-produced by a huge number of people. Uh, with people with lived experience and living experience at the core, but also we've had the benefit of working with um, international academics, very experienced practitioners family members and basically as Debbie said it's a framework it's designed to support a compassionate and detailed collaborative if you like collaborative exploration of how somebody is thinking and feeling and it's been designed so it fully aligns with best practice latest research national policy we're constantly updating it we're now version 2.5 but as well as being a framework, what we've done is because our technical director, we we um, are able to harness technology to free up time to care. So Safe Tool brings together the process of assessment, documentation and intervention in one place. And we've worked with most of the main electronic patient records. So it's be able to embed it in clinical notes. We do not charge use of Safe Tool. We just need to make sure that clinicians are trained to use it safely, because certainly the National Confidential Inquiry has shown repeatedly that people are using assessment frameworks and they're not being trained properly. So I won't go into too much detail, but there are various elements of safe tools. So, for example, the continuum is designed with sliders and it's to tease out all aspects of suicidal thinking. And by using this to have a conversation, you're able to really capture but also record and convey very complex clinical information. And yet it feels straightforward to use. It's made to look easy, but there's a science behind it. With a classification, we use clinical descriptors. We use a, It's like a common language. So that gets rid of any subjectivity and the old way of doing things, if you like, because we know that the high, medium and low is just doesn't work and it's not safe. But you can't tell people to stop doing something. If you like, you have to give them something else to do instead. We, we also suggest the main risk factors that we really have to find out if they're there, not to predict risk, 
but to intervene. So I suppose to, in summary, it is not a risk prediction tool. However, it does bring the process of assessment and intervention. And at the end of it, the clinician has a risk mitigation plan. And then the person, the patient, has a safety plan that they take away with them. And I, I think what's really interesting, that paradoxically, by using this technical solution and by embedding it, if you like, in the electronic patient records, what it's done, and I think this is why we were finalists last year in the HSJ with two of our NHS partners, they said it actually gave them permission to care. They found that patients were much more involved in their clinical, you know, in the, in the clinical assessment process, in their safety planning. It got rid of any problems with referral between different team members and different teams. Um, and it actually enhanced and it removes all the cognitive load of thinking, what do I ask next? What do I do next? Because it really guides. And the key thing is every single person has a safety plan because truth is, you know, you can do assessment today, which is absolutely exemplary. Your patient leaves that room and has a brand new life event. But safety plan takes that into, by you making a safety plan, you future-proof people because people are shocked that I have a safety plan. Well, I'm a human first. I don't know what life will throw at me, but by having a safety plan, I got a chance of getting through it. You've said everybody should make a safety plan and that raises a couple of questions in my mind. The first thing is uh, whether this is available nationally and we'll, we'll have details of how people should make safety plans on the show notes. But also, are there any times when it wouldn't be appropriate? And what do you do if somebody says, no, I don't want a safety plan? Thank you very much. Uh, well, I think the first comment is that's one of the reasons we made staying safe, because we're passionate. We want everyone to have a safety plan, whether they have funding, whether they go to training or not. So the key difference about staying safe is that the um, electronic safety plan, which you make online, is full of pre-populated suggestions that have been through an incredibly rigorous peer review process. And if you look at stayingsafe.net and if you read the about bit, you will have a list of all the international experts in suicide and self-harm prevention who help make it. Other people help, but they just didn't want their name. Many with lived experience. So have a look. So it's quality assured. You know it's safe. So even if you're not an expert, even if you've not had training, you know, if you just follow these steps, you know what you're doing is safe. It also has video guidance. It's got a special advice for if you're worried about a young person, got other advice worried about someone else. And we include some films from people with lived experience who've used thingsafe.net. Um, and I think what's lovely, one of the comments, which is really meaningful, this is from Sarah Markham, who sat on the expert reference group, one of our lived experience experts. And somebody was saying on Twitter, you know, what is staying safe anyway? And she came back with such a beautiful quote. I have her permission to use it today. She said, it's the online equivalent of a hot, strong mug of cocoa when you're so cold inside and it feels as though no one cares and no one ever will. Well, they do. And here's the proof. Stayingsafe.net, how you feel does matter. You see, I couldn't say better than that. Oh, that's absolutely lovely. That's super. So you've created this free online resource, which is absolutely wonderful. So anybody can access that. And I have to say, Alice, you've got a safety plan. I've used your safety plan and I've got a safety plan. And I think everybody should have a safety plan in the same way as we all wear safety belts when driving cars. Uh, and we've got a system, Debbie, that you're you're um, using in Somerset that's train the trainer to help embed this in services. 
Uh, and, oh, aren't we lucky that this is, we hope, helping lots of people. Alice. And sorry, Peter, I'm, I'm so passionate. I didn't answer your question properly. The thing is, you know, is it ever appropriate not to make a safety plan? Well, sometimes you may be with somebody who is either so distressed or for whatever reason can't fully engage in the process now, in which case you would maybe make a modified one. So maybe what you would do is, and all of this is based on a compassionate therapeutic relationship, and it's amazing how that in itself is an intervention. But even to say, you know, I can absolutely see how you're struggling now and I can see, you know, you're not interested, but can we just, can I just help you find a couple of things that can help you get through the next 30 seconds? Can we just find a couple of things that maybe just maybe make the part, the time pass just a bit quicker? And that would be getting through right now. Also, you as in the mental health service provider or you as the GP or the third sector can think, what can I do to help this person stay safer now? So you would help them look at access to means. You won't necessarily say you're doing that at the time. And then what you find is if people, there's nothing quite like getting someone into safety planning by them experiencing that it can help them. And then when the situation's calmer or things have just cooled down a bit, you say, well, is it, we look at other people, maybe as an organization contact and you do it slowly. It's a living document that evolves with the person. That's fascinating, Alice. Thank you. And I've got a question for Debbie now, which is um, there's a programme of training within the mental health services in Somerset, but we've got 4,000 people, maybe I'm, I may be wrong on figures, it may be six or 7,000 um, people working in the acute sector in the NHS in Somerset. We've got lots more working um, uh, in primary care. How do we How do we help all our colleagues learn that this is such a good idea that they should not only wear safety belts when driving their cars, but they should have psychological safety safety nets as well and safety plan. And you're absolutely right, Andrew. And there are a number of projects. So as we've just integrated, you may realise that um, Somerset Foundation Trust has integrated with um, Yeovil District Hospital and we've got Musbrook Grove Park. So that with that integration comes much greater opportunity for us to work together with our physical health colleagues. So we're working on a number of projects to make awareness around mental health issues more, um, more um, prominent within our mental health services, a number of projects going on. And we're also delivering some training, a slightly shorter training, but we're certainly develop, developing and delivering some awareness training for our staff at the moment who work within our um, acute and community settings who don't necessarily work in mental health, just to give them the confidence, I think, to ask about suicide, because I think, you, you know, somebody alluded earlier, I think it was Peter about the fear about talking about suicide, somehow planting the idea. So we're working very strongly um, with our, our, our physical health colleagues, if you like, to understand the overlaps and the parallels, because mental health and physical health are so interrelated. So yes, we, we absolutely agree. And, you know, the more we can do in that domain, the better. If I can just add something um, to, to Debbie's comment, absolutely, because most people who end their life having been to hospital, it's when they've left a general hospital, not a psychiatric hospital. And in fact, one of the advocates of safety planning is a fabulous and a very well-respected um, consultant in emergency medicine, uh, Dr. Mark Buchanan. And he actually uses safety planning clinically. And I think nobody would disagree that emergency departments are really under pressure but by linking the use of a safety plan to a particular 
clinical um, clinical step, it makes sense. So, for example, when he's seen somebody and assessed somebody, he actually asks, you know, may I see your phone? So on the person's phone, he shows them how to get stayingsafe.net on their phone. He shows them where to find the online safety plan. And it only takes them maybe, I don't know, a minute, two minutes. And they start making that as he then goes to make the referral to mental health services. And I think that's a wonderful example about how, and staying safe is freely available. We also have free training on that website. If people don't have a budget, if they don't, if they're not able to access the connect with people training via other routes um, about how to use stayingsafe.net safely. And just like to reflect that we're very lucky to have such passionate and dedicated people working in a, a difficult and sensitive field and, and to thank you for all your hard work. And a word that, that, both of you have used several times in the in the podcast has been compassion, and that's something maybe we don't take enough care of, uh, and and give enough thought to in in health. But it's such an important concept, isn't it? Are there any last words that you want to leave us with? We're we're coming to the end of our time, sadly. And if people want to learn more, um, Debbie, we had you on a previous uh podcast in suicide awareness week didn't we so people can listen to that as well but are there any last words you'd like to leave us with i think i'd really like to encourage as alice has suggested that people look at stayingsafe.net and familiarize themselves with the safety plan and really think about whether or not they'd like to develop one for themselves now i think i would really strongly encourage people to do that I, I would thank you, Debbie. I'd like to just finish with a quote from another from another member of lived experience group. And this is Jack Jackson, um, who's a fabulous ally of full mental health. And he was the Stonewall Trans role model of 2018. And what he said, he said that um, my safety plan from StayingSafe.net has not only saved my own life, but feedback from people I've supported is that it's given them hope and the belief that things that feelings can and do change. He said, it's a very simple way to break through the overwhelming impulse of not wanting to be here. And I think if we can just instill in people the hope and there's always something you can do. So please have a look at stayingsafe.net now and you you owe it to yourself. And can I just interject? I've seen research showing that, that people who can get through that uh, and uh, overcome that impulse to end their lives we'll be glad that they have done in a month or three months down the line. So this isn't something that people are stuck with for life, is it? Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that inspired me, you know, two and a half decades ago was when I spoke to patients because a key part of my job was assessing people after suicide attempts and following them up. And absolutely. And that's what the research tells us as well, as well as lived experience, that suicidal thoughts are your distress lying to you. And the whole thing is is about finding ways that we can stay safer and the people around us and the people we care about that we know how we can help them stay safer. And if you'd like to know more about anything that we've mentioned today, we obviously will be providing information for the um, podcast show notes. And thank you so much for the invitation. I really appreciate it. Thank you both very much, Debbie and Alice, for coming along. Uh, Debbie, for all the work you're doing in Somerset. Alice, for being a national, international and authority and leader in the subject and for your passion and for your compassion, which shine through. And yours as well, Debbie. It's major teamwork. 
I've got to say a huge, huge big thank you to my four mental health colleagues and all the trainers and people like Debbie and all our NHS partners, incredible trainers. We couldn't do it without them. So, you know, it's the most amazing teamwork you've ever been involved in. And lastly, I'd like to thank Professor Stephen Platt, who's been an incredible support in his role within the four mental health expert reference group. We've worked very closely together over many years, and he has been key in ensuring that our material is consistent with the latest research and policy internationally. Steve brings unparalleled depth and breadth in suicide prevention knowledge. And on a personal note, his mentorship has been invaluable, and I'm incredibly grateful. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Go well. You've been listening to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast. The show was hosted by our team of doctors, including Dr. Andrew Tresider, Dr. Peter Bagshaw, and Dr. Sarah Coop. The show was produced by Rob Holmes Music on behalf of the NHS Somerset Integrated Care Board.